0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Wine never seems to be a controversial topic, but you'd be surprised once you know its history and the cultural wars surrounding it. And it's been quite a battle. So it's a perfect time to toast my guest, Victor D'Rossi. He's author of The War on Wine, Prohibition, Neo-Prohibition*. An American Culture, published by University of Nevada Press and available on Amazon, Barnes, and Noble, and all the usual places. And Victor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Two questions. Tell us about your family background, because that's important to the book, and then why you decided to write this book on
1: wine. Uh, Family background. I'm a Sicilian. My, My grandfather came to America in early 1900s, and they were the typical Sicilian immigrants, they didn't know how to read or write, they were poor, and they ended up, they came through New Orleans, which many of the Sicilians did, and they ended up in the San Diego County area as a caretaker for vineyards that were here. El Cajon area of uh, the San Diego County used to have over 10,000 acres of mm. raisins, and that when the raisin industry moved to Thompson Seedless, and it moved, moved to the Central Valley of California, The industry went out, and these immigrants maintained these vineyards for table grapes. My dad grew up in those vineyards, and he continued it until he was 70 years old as a sharecropper. So I've always grown up in vineyards. I've grown up around grapes. Being a Sicilian culture, we made our own wine. Wine was, for us, an everyday beverage for meals. And to this day, even with my grandkids, when we're sitting at a family table, we have wine.
0: And your father's name was Victor, too, right? Yes, my father's yeah. name
1: was Victor. My great-grandfather was Victor. My grandson is Victor. So it's kind of a name that carries down through the uh yeah, through nice. the generation. So why did you decide to write the book? I taught middle school for almost 21 years. And I knew I wanted to go back to grad school. And when I went back, I went was accepted to UC Santa Barbara for American history to get my doctorate. And it just kind of fell in place. It was one of those. Why not study something I at least know something about and improve the history of it? And for me, it just became uh, one of those serendipitous moments.
0: Well, you say in your introduction to the book, and I'm quoting, The history of wine in America is a tale of capitalistic production, consumer experience, and anti-alcohol forces seeking prohibition or restrictions on all alcohol, unquote. What surprised me about your book was... I you always think about bootlegging and the history of bootlegging, and you think more of hard liquor and beer than you do of wine. Wine's always been, from my point of view, a benign experience, a benign substance, and it's been part of many cultures and obviously around the world. And yet here in America there seem to be all these issues. We had thirteen years of federal prohibition. So give us a little bit of background on that whole tapestry that I've just laid out with your quoting from your introduction of why the war on wine basically
1: the war on wine took place because for the first 200 years america couldn't develop a wine industry it failed almost everywhere they started the 13 original colonies from day one they tried vineyards they just couldn't grow the grapes properly they didn't have the climate they didn't have the geography and as we started westward movement We started to get a wine industry, but it's not until California became a state and they had the perfect location Mm -hmm. that we had a place to start a wine culture. But that was 200 years later. In the interim, people weren't going to give up drinking. So they moved towards distilled spirits. At one point, Americans were drinking on an average of three and a half gallons of alcohol per person per year. And the majority of that was distilled spirits. And by the early 1800s, America had become what many considered to be an alcoholic republic. I mean, even European visitors commented how Americans were, they were drunk. I mean, kids from age, you know, from middle school age on up were drinking, women were drinking. Alcohol had become an issue. We didn't have wine. And we didn't get a wine culture until very late in our Mm -hmm. In our history, it wouldn't be until the 1880s and 1890s that California had a wine industry that could supply the United States. And by that time, we had lost that sense of what my, wine means to a cultural aspect of who we are. And by that, I mean, it's at the dinner table. It's part of our meal. It's a beverage. It's for celebrations. I mean, um, being raised as an Italian Catholic, every sacrament that we celebrated, it had wine involved. It was there. And we had lost that for a large part of our time. The other problem was, is that the only people that could afford wine was imported wine for those 200 years. So yes, Thomas Jefferson and, you know, the first presidents, they all had wine, but they also had money to buy wine. At one point, wine became a problem for the trade deficit. Hmm. We were, and rum was cheap. We had, um, grain. We could make distilled spirits very easily. In fact, the whiskey rebellion early in our history, grain farmers were, you know, fighting for the right to raise grain to make whiskey. So we had, we developed this sense that we were, we were not going to give up drinking. And that was one of the fallacies of prohibition, is you don't legislate morals and ethics. I think, um, in fact, I'm going to read you a quote that I think is, it, it was one of those early on quotes that I read, and it made me even think more about the issue. It comes from a book called The War on Alcohol, and it's by Lisa McGurr. Quote, the war on alcohol was a prime example of a recurring theme of the United States mass politics. The nation's powerful traditions of evangelical Protestantism and its free willing brand of expansive capitalism emerged in tandem and in tension with one another. This combination of forces periodically fueled moral crusades among men and women, unsettled by social conflict and change. These reformers turned to the state to stabilize the social order and secure their place within it, with strong doses of corrosive moral absolutes.
0: Hmm. Nice.
1: Well, it gives definitely the sense of that. Yeah, that's the alcohol part. I think that's the true sense. Alcohol and alcohol was a problem by the early 1800s. Women's groups were fighting for their rights as women not to be beaten when they got home, not to have their children abused, not to have their husbands spend all their money. On alcohol in speakeasies or, you know, or bars, uh, um, saloons, as they called them in those days, entrepreneurs, factory owners, they wanted a silver workforce. Evangelical mm-hmm. Protestants thought this was a God. This wasn't a godly thing. So we have all these forces coming together to battle a social problem of alcoholism, but they didn't understand that alcohol had a place in culture.
0: And that's, and, because, and that's because, as you said earlier, uh, if I understand it, Victor, and I want our audience to understand it as well, and they probably do, and I, I'm just wanting to make sure I understand it. The issue sure. became, because we didn't have the wine culture as we've had in other countries around the world, we started with, in essence, whiskey with the hard stuff, and that caused the problem, as you were just talking about, for society rather than had we had wine to begin with at least that's what is that correct what i'm sensing here
1: Yeah, i don't know if that's an absolute but i do know that it could have helped reduce it Hmm. america has this freewheeling idea nobody is going to tell me what to do individualism and nobody was going to tell those early pioneers coming out west and it had to be a terrible lifestyle coming across that country and what they were putting up with. And they saw it as a right to drink. So we developed some bad habits and we totally lost any of the good habits, which I consider wine to be.
0: Well, I guess that's my point. In other words, if you're a hardy pioneer and you've got the covered wagons coming out to the West, you're going to drink the hard stuff because you're dealing with harsh reality. So, it's
1: more bang for the more bang for the buck.
0: yeah. It's not a subtle wine is more subtle and wine is more, as you say, part of the culture in the and that permeates a certain kind of culture, not necessarily the guys coming over to make a new life in the West.
1: And for a good part of the time, there was an economic reason also. Whiskey was one fourth the price. A bottle of whiskey was one fourth the price of a gallon of wine. You know, it's back to that old more bang for the buck. Yeah,
0: no, no, that, that understood totally. I don't know that you answered my question earlier. I always come back to when I don't think I've got an exact or a complete answer. Okay. And it's not your fault. It's just that I think you answered it partly. But why did you decide to write the book specifically about the war on wine? What was it that motivated you? Given your background, your family background, you talked about that. And you've given us a great overview of uh, how America embraced whiskey and the hard stuff. Versus wine because you couldn't grow grapes until you, California started developing that industry. But why did what motivated you to write this book?
1: I worked at UC Berkeley. I was the associate director of the Oral History Center. And my area of specialty was California food and wine. And I had the opportunity to continue a series of interviews with a man called John DeLuca. And John DeLuca. Really, I got to spend hours and hours and hours with him. This was his interview is over 300 pages long. I mean, it's huge. And one of the key themes was his struggle to make wine in the minds of Americans appear again to be a beverage of moderation. And when I finished those interviews, it was one of those things that kind of rolls in the back of your mind. It was always sitting there, wine. I grew up with it and accepted it as it's every day. But many Americans do not have that. And that was his struggle to take a wine institute and make wine again a commodity that's part of our everyday life. Now,
0: John DeLuca was president and chief executive officer of the wine institute. The
1: man is extraordinary, Um, has his doctorate in international studies, studied in Rome. He's a son of uh, Sicilian immigrants, grew up in the 1930s, uh, little Italy of New York. He worked at embassies in Moscow. He worked at the embassy in Rome. He was at, uh, with Richard Nixon at the Kitchen Debates in the 1960s, which is a very, in fact, he was an interpreter because he spoke Russian, Italian, Sicilian, and English. So it was uh, deputy mayor of San Francisco. The guy had this huge political background. He had wine at the table. He had never been to a vineyard before. Hmm. He had never been to a winery before. And the Wine Institute in the late seventies it fell apart for tell a series us, well, of well, tell, reasons.
0: Victor, tell us so what is the Wine Institute? So that, before we get ahead of it, so people understand what the concept of the Wine Institute. In the nineteen
1: thirties, once Prohibition had been done away with. Uh, grape growers realized their industry had been totally demolished. They needed to rebuild. And part of the rebuilding, like any business or corporate structure, they had to rebrand. And a man called Leon Adams wanted to rebrand in the European cultural model, the model of wine and moderation as part of our pharmacopoeia, part of our dinner, a beverage of celebration, but not an alcoholic substance used for abuse. So that started, they started the Wine Institute, and by the 1950s, they were extremely successful. But the Wine Institute fell victim in the 1960s to something it had fallen victim to before, and that's corporate greed. Then the industry consolidated. Wine became another commodity that was sold as an alcohol, not that cultural beverage. It happened in the late 1880s to early 1900s. The California Wine Authority made up to 80% of California wine and represented almost 80% of all growers. made. They produced 80% of all American wine. They became just a corporate structure. Prohibition was an end result. In the 1950s, 60s, the American wine industry turned to that again, and it fell apart by the late 70s. He came in as president of an organization that lost 50% of its membership. All the, from the president on down, their executive board resigned. They lost their funding from the state of California under the marketing act. And that's the organization he took over to rebuild. And he rebuilt it on the idea of wine in moderation as part of a cultural value. That's what fascinated me in the story, because he truly is the representative of that Sicilian immigrant. You're not going to tell me what to do, but I'm going to help you understand why this is important to me and to a lot of people. That was his battle. And the Wine Institute was the way that he represented that. So yeah. it was an organ. It was a marketing, a marketing organization. Let's put it. They're right. capitalists too. They've got to make money.
0: I has the word institute in it, but it's it's
1: a trade organization more than anything. It's else. It's a trade organization. Yeah. Let, you know, let's call it as it is. Yeah, no, that that's fine. But it was, a, but it was a trade organization he, that he tried to give a moral imperative to. Mm-hmm. And he's still alive today, isn't he? He's still alive. He just celebrated his ninetieth uh, birthday on December seventh. Excellent, so
0: well, hopefully he'll hear us talking about him, and he'll enjoy the conversation
1: yes i I definitely will hope you send him this <laughs> okay <laughs> When you started working
0: on the book because of your background, you talked about it before, and it's a great background you you had certain tools at your disposal, certain skills you developed, certain knowledge that you have. Was it any part of the process of writing the book difficult? Yes,
1: I think it was difficult for first of all. I, a uh, much of the book is dependent upon my oral interviews. I sent, besides what I had done at Berkeley, I personally spent over a three year period, over a hundred hours of interviews with him, specifically on this topic of, you know, the effects of prohibition. And when COVID hit, you know, that cut our one on one. And John DeLuca is a man, like all of us Sicilians, you take our hands away and we can't talk. <laughs> so it, so that was that was that in itself was was a problem. I think um not being able to get to libraries personally was a problem because of covid. And I think much of it for me was also dependent upon the fact that it was a personal story. And I wanted to make sure I got it right. So I kept this book went through at least seven or eight drafts. It wasn't, it wasn't just something I dreamed up, typed out, and it was out there. Mm-hmm. No, It went through a lot. You clearly believe in the subject, so you wanted to do it the best job you can. I wanted to do it right. Yeah. So it took more time than normally. I mean, I've written nine books, and this book really turned out to be a labor of love. I mean, it's kind of like giving birth to a child. Did you send the uh, book to Mr. DeLuca? Did you get a response? Oh, yes. In fact, for his 90th birthday in December, I was a guest speaker. We had a party for him and every attendee got a copy of the book. So, uh, yes. And as a byproduct of it, I had done so many of the interviews. I also produced just for the family, a book that's separate. That's his life history, more of a biography. And it really goes into his background. The man, as I said, was amazing. Didn't meet his one brother until he was 16 years old because his parents came over before World War II had started. When the war started, they couldn't bring their first child from Sicily to America because of the war. His father was put in an internment camp at Ellis Island because he was a political activist as an Italian in America you know it just, his story just goes on and on with all of these rich layers of the onion as it goes so i put together a biography just for him it's almost
0: it's almost the deluca story it's almost the story of wine in the sense of the complex layers that you have with wine
1: and that's the part about him and his story that fascinated me i understood those layers because of my own background but i never understood that many people did not believe in those layers that many people not only did not believe in it they were on a messianic mission to make sure i couldn't celebrate that
0: it's interesting the the dichotomy between the italian uh, you come from an italian sicilian background jews also have a a connection with wine in terms of religious observances as well and other religious groups do and yet you have as you say there are other groups within a culture or a society that are opposed to any form of alcohol, whether it's wine in moderation or
1: whiskey to excess, it doesn't matter. And you know, the important thing to remember is that's a good thing. Many people can't drink alcoholic beverages for either physical or mental issues. And we should not be pushing them to. This is not the intent. Um, in fact, John DeLuca for the Wine Institute, with the help of the Gallo Foundation, you know, Ernest and Julio Gallo, they set up a research center at UCSF in brain disorders for alcoholics. That Today, this center is still in existence, does more than alcoholism, has been looking at issues of brain trauma, uh, especially with returning veterans from wars. And they knew from the very beginning, some people just can't and it's not their mission to make them very similar so to there, very
0: similar to the gaming industry and and helping compulsive gamblers with their issues it's a exactly. similar kind of thing there are some know.
1: people that can't do it but that doesn't mean the rest of us can't enjoy it should, yeah can't enjoy it yeah yeah what was the most surprising thing you
0: found in your research and it was either maybe about a historical fact that embellished that fact that you found out through additional research or Someone you discovered, a person that had a major impact in addition to Mr. DeLuca, for example, uh, that, well, I'll let you speak because you're the one that wrote the book. What was the most surprising thing you found?
1: Uh, On the pro side for wine, it would be Leon Adams, who in the 1930s through the 1950s was an advocate for wine and moderation as a cultural thing. So that's on the plus side. On the negative side, I never realized the animosity. And political animosity. And that's where DeLuca was the perfect person. He was a politician. He was a political science, a PhD. He'd worked at embassies. He'd worked. He was a, a White House fellow for Lyndon Johnson. The politics of wine. One man would be Strom Thurmond, who hated alcohol to the extent that he would do anything to stop any and all help for the wine industry to the point where he literally would hold up presidential and congressional appointments Mm. to offices that needed to be filled. He was so powerful. Strom Thurmond was one of the longest serving serving congressmen that we have. And he was so powerful that every time he didn't get what he wanted, they would create a new commission to study wine or to study alcohol. And the industry followed the, I think, cultural politics of today, you destroy your opponent from the bottom up. Grassroots. You name call. You throw out the half-truth and let it stick, even if it's not true. DeLuca himself was called a purveyor of drugs. He he at one point, um, the wine industry the members were complaining to him, this is in Napa Sonoma, this is in California, that the schools in those areas were teaching kids on the about drugs, rightfully so. Kids need to be educated on it. But they were telling these kids that their parents who worked in the wine industry were baby killers. Mm. This was coming out in the literature. I mean, it had gone to those type of extremes. And yes, pregnant women should not be excessively using drugs alcohol tobacco that's common sense mm-hmm. but yet how many millions of us were born from mothers and grandmothers that had a glass of wine with dinner and we turned out just fine mm-hmm. it's the moderation issue you know so you throw the extremes out they also learned that to control what was being done policy wise in the US government you control funding so they literally would pass congressional laws that nothing dealing with moderation and studies medically on how wine could be a good substance, a healthful substance, could be passed. So the politics, I think, is what, and the nasty politics, how it went and all, I mean, DeLuca testified before the Senate committees, he testified before House committees, he had personal meetings with LBJ, JFK, uh, JFK. now excuse me, JFK, with Bill Clinton. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> That's flashback <laughs> to history. <a> flashback, <laughs> you know, kind of, with so, with with presidents, and they would talk about this. So his place was that he brought politics to the Wine Institute, and politics that could battle at the policy-making level, and that's truly important because without that, it would have been shut down like any other alcoholic Mm -hmm. beverage. But the issue of warning labels, the issue of direct delivery of wine, why is it I can't, under the Interstate Commerce Clause, I can't go to some, people from some states can't come to California on vacation and have wine delivered to their home. Now, there have been workarounds, But that was one of his major battles of fighting. How did he fight it? He had the common sense politically to know that wine is a beverage for meals. So therefore he went to the uh, food and drug administration. He went to the Department of Agriculture, who puts out a wine pyramid of the foods we should be eating, now called a wine plate. And he got past legislation through his political expertise. That the wine now has a food pyramid with a Mediterranean diet, and it has a glass of wine in the corner, showing that wine in moderation and it's very specific one glass for women, two glasses for men, mealtime is a healthful idea. This Damn. Strom Thurman almost blew a gas. I bet.
0: That. Before I let you go, what is the current status of the war? The war on wine?
1: Luca was great and reminded me, and even reminded me on this December, it's not over. This is a reoccurring theme. We go in bits and fits. Same thing as great awakenings in religion. We're in a culture war era now. This isn't our first. We've been through these before. And it's going to continue to happen. So he warned the wine industry, be ever vigilant. Do not give up the battle. His worry is that they have. Hmm. Is that they're now again, like they have in the past, given into the marketing aspect only, making wine just another alcoholic beverage. And in the past that never turned out good. Wow. Well, and the book goes the book goes through instances of how every time it turns to that mentality, things go bad. History repeats itself. History repeats itself. And that is his warning directly to the industry. And I think as I ended my interviews with him and he made that statement, that's really what planted the seed for this book.
0: Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Victor William, which I didn't mention your middle name in the intro, but I will now. Thank you. Victor William Gerasi. He's author of The War on Wine, Prohibition, Neo Prohibition, and American Culture published by the University of Nevada Press and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And Victor, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me It was fun. Pleasure. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel and a glass of wine.